Good day. It's good to see you guys. I think it's been four years since I've been with you like this, so it's really good to be here. Um, I remember many of you, of course. I remember many of you from uh, EV Kids and EV Youth, but look at you all. You're all grown up now. I'm all grown up now too. I've got no hair and kids coming out my ears. Um, it's good to be with you. Uh, let's pray as we jump into this um, very big part of the Bible. Our Father, we're so thankful that you are a God who speaks. We're thankful for this part of your word, confronting as it may be, and we pray that tonight would be good for us, that you would uh, use tonight to help us to see you more clearly, ourselves more clearly, and that you might bring yourself honour through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we are looking at one of the most confronting parts of the Bible, in some regard, every week, um, as we come together week by week and open the Bible, in some regard, every week's a confronting week because the Bible brings to us a message which is radically different from what we hear from the world around us, a radically different message from Netflix, from Disney, from Instagram, from the White House. The Bible tells us that there is a God who is king over all the universe, a good and holy God, and that we are His creatures. We are his creatures who've actually turned away from him and he's full of wrath at our rebellion. That's confronting, yeah? That's the message of the Bible. But it doesn't stop there. In his great love and mercy, he sent a son to die so that if we would just put our trust in him to save, we would be saved. That's the message of the Bible and it is confronting. God is love, yes, that's from the Bible. God is love but you are a creature. You are dependent upon Him. You are His creature and you are a sinful creature, rebellious, yet God is a merciful Saviour. That's the message of the Bible and tonight we're narrowing in on one of the most confronting elements of that message. So confronting that I remember exactly when I heard it myself for the first time. It was actually at EV night. We weren't in this building, we were down at um, uh, Grandma in the hall there, and I remember where I was sitting in the building, I remember a particular person uh, at the church at the time asking a question, I remember hearing the, the preacher's response and thinking, ah, that's not satisfying, I remember the whole thing. What's this issue we're wrestling with? What's this confronting thing? It's the issue of predestination, that God, in his sovereign freedom, chooses people's eternal destinies. Have a look at verse 15. God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Who makes the choice about whether we will be saved or not, forgiven? God makes the choice. He predetermines it. It's His choice. Now, that's confronting. It's confronting because it throws into the air or it burns up before us our notions of who we are and of who God is. See, what, it, what actually is our relationship between humanity and God? What rights do I have before God? Or what rights does God have over me? What freedom does God have over me? It raises all sorts of questions. Questions which 
the passage doesn't actually shy away from. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is, yes, it, uh, it is a message, uh, a confronting message to our world, but the beautiful thing is that it meets us where we're at. So in this chapter, where it raises one of the most confronting things for us, it raises it in the context of, now you might be thinking this, but let me tell you. Now you might be thinking this, but let me tell you. Because it's God addressing us. God saying, I know where you're at, but this is what you need to know. Listen to my words. It's God speaking to us. And so it, it raises an issue and it, it deals with different aspects of that issue. And so what we find throughout our chapter is a cascading down of ideas and issues. Uh, it deals with Paul and his aching heart for the lost Israelites. It deals with whether God has therefore failed Israel. It deals then whether God has, um, being the one who chooses, whether that's fair or not. Then it deals with whether God can blame us if it's actually His choice. There's this cascading down, and God, in His kindness, says, think about this next, now think about this next. It deals with all these things, and doubtless we'll have more questions, but it deals with all these things, which means that this is a very dense chapter, with a very tight argument, where one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And so what I want to do for us tonight is I want to take us into that argument, and when you do that, something quite profound happens. You realise that our problem with this chapter is Paul's solution to another problem. Paul's got this problem, and he goes, oh, no, no, it's all right, guys, predestination. Now, predestination's our problem. What is our problem is Paul's solution. And so, what I want to do is take us into the argument and see this first issue to which predestination is the answer and then secondly wrestle with predestination. So there's kind of two halves of tonight, there's this first thing which leads to predestination and when you see predestination in that proper context, it better positions you to see why it is the right answer, that it's actually a cause for security for thanksgiving and a truth that can ground you, bringing the right perspective to see who God is and to see who we are. So who is God? What's He like? Who am I? That's some of the stuff I hope we'll arrive at tonight. And one last thing before we jump in, it's often the case that when people first become Christians, you go through this time of radical spiritual growth, the first one, two, three years, because you're seeing things for the first time. You're seeing things from the Bible about yourself, about God, about the world, and you're putting all the pieces together. And you're seeing that I've now got this worldview and life makes sense. God makes sense of life now, I get it. And the Spirit is putting, to, putting in order a bunch of stuff in your life, but then that slows down. And what Christians often do is, as they look back, they say, the next time that I went through significant growth as a Christian was when I was faced with Romans 9. And so it's my hope that for, for many of us tonight, that will be, it will be that kind of moment for us. So let's dive into Paul's argument and let's have a look at these two issues. Have a look at verse 1 there, pick it up there. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now here is a man who is hurting 
and needing to defend himself. Verse one, notice how he defends himself. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So he keeps banging on about it. He's defending his sorrow. Now, why is he sorrowful? Verse three, for I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is hurting for Israel because many of the Israelites, God's Old Testament people, were now cut off and separate from God. Now let me, uh, that's a problem, that's a problem for Israel obviously, but it's a problem for Christians. Let me show you this, it's a problem for Christians. See, Paul has just spent eight chapters saying that for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, nothing can separate you from God's love. Have a look at this, just one verse back in the last verse of chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. But hang on a second, the Israelites are separated. They're cut off, haven't they? And if God has made promises to Israel and yet they're cut off, Does that mean God won't keep His promises to us? I mean, God made all these promises to Israel and He walked with them and He had all these blessings for them for 1,500 years and now we're here. Have a look at this, all these blessings that God brought for Israel. Verse 4, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law. He's, He's rattling off all these Old Testament things that God has done for Israel Theirs is the patriarchs, those old, test, those old fathers like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Can you see the problem? Ever since Abraham, back in Genesis 12, God had made Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, they were his special people. And now where are they? They're separate. The Messiah finally turned up in one of their very own race turned up and they rejected him and consequently they're rejected by God. And so the conclusion you might draw is, well, God's word failed. He promised all this stuff, but he didn't come through. See the problem? Now, this is more than just intellectual curiosity. See, can you trust God? Can you trust God to be faithful to the promises he's made you? Or is Romans 1 to 8 just kind of nice, but who knows? Will God be faithful? Will He keep and love you forever in Christ and nothing can separate you? What do we make of God's promises? Well, the answer starts in verse 6. And for the next bunch of verses, what Paul does is, he makes the point that, no, no, God's Word hadn't failed, but there's Israel and then there's Israel. There's the physical descendants of Abraham, sure, but then there's the spiritual ones, and they're the ones God made the promises to. Let's have a look at this together. Verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they were his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise 
who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul says, you think the promises of God have failed? Ah, Look again more closely. Look again at what God actually promised. Look at who he made promises to. And so Paul takes them all the way back to Abraham, where those promises to Israel began, and it walks them through that. Now, I've got a slide for us, and a little clicky-dearly. So Paul takes us back to Abraham, right? And back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God makes these big promises to Abraham. And the big thing he says is, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. And here's a good summary, Genesis 17, oh, it's broken. Oh, no, there we go. Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant with you between me and you and your descendants to be your God. God is going to be the God of Abraham and Abraham's descendants are going to be his people. Now, the thing is, Abraham's a very, very old dude, and his wife is a very, very old dudette. And so, a bunch of time goes on, and they still don't have kids. And so, Sarah, his wife, conspires with her female slave, Hagar, and she says, hey, Hagar, go and sleep with my husband. These are just great people, by the way. Um, go and sleep with Abraham and have a kid by him. And so they do that, right? And so Abraham gets a descendant, this guy here, Ishmael, his first son. Now, God's made a promise to Abraham to be his God and the God of his descendants. But what do you think God thinks about them taking matters into their own hands? He says, guys, I kind of got this. I don't actually need your help. And so God, by a miracle, when Abraham and his wife are very, very old, give birth to Isaac. And so that's the point that's being made there in verse 7. No, 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 it's not just whoever's your physical descendant. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, you have the same thing happening with Isaac. The same thing happens again. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have two kids, twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, what's the thing about twins? The thing about twins is they're freaky because they're the same person twice. They're weird in that way. I'm sorry if you're a twin, but it is confronting to have two people who look the same. One of my good friends growing up, a guy named Travis, was a twin. And the first time I ever saw his brother, I was leaving his house, and I just said, see you, Travis, and I turned around, and then there he is again, and I said, oh, it's another Travis. Um, See, Jacob and Esau, this guy has twins, right? But have a look. Have a look from verse 10, what happens. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the very same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older Esau will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Where hate there doesn't mean I hate you for no good reason, but I've chosen Jacob and I've rejected Esau. Now, what's going on there? Well, verse 8 is a wonderful summary for us. Verse 8, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. God's word had not failed. God's promise to Abraham to bring about a special people for himself through Abraham, 
It had narrowed down, narrowed down, narrowed down. And eventually, the Israelites themselves, when the Messiah came, they rejected him. But there was a remnant, a smaller group, like Paul, who did put their faith in Jesus. And there were chosen Gentiles, like you and me, like the, Ro- the Christians in Rome, who had put their trust in Jesus. And so God's promise to Abraham hadn't failed, they just needed to read their Bible a bit closer. Now, what was happening here? God was the one who was choosing at every moment, this is my descendant, these are my people, these are my people. Do you see how predestination has come into view now? The answer to why Isaac was a child of God and not Ishmael, why Jacob was and not Esau, why so many Israelites were now separated, it's because God is the one who chose. There's the solution to the problem of Israel. It's because they weren't chosen. They weren't predestined. You feeling satisfied? Shall we leave it there? Before we go to predestination now, I want to say, do you see the trustworthiness of God's Word? The problem here is, God's Word had not failed, verse 6, they just hadn't read God's Word closely. God is the good God who makes promises and then is faithful. His promises will not fail. Now, many of you will know the pain of broken promises from people close to us even, people you've trusted. But God is not a human that He should lie, not a human being that He should change His mind. So when God promises to you that if you trust in Jesus, nothing can separate you from Him, He's faithful and good and true. He will keep His promises. So we can trust our God. That's the first issue. As we come now to the issue of predestination, I want to say from the outset, this is not all that the Bible has to say on this topic. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll pick up an incredibly important angle that this passage just does not put in the forefront for us. Um, but don't let tonight be your one shot at this. In fact, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to run a digging deeper across three Monday nights called Predestination and the Goodness of God. And so, um, doubtless you'll have lots of questions by the end of tonight still. Write them down, bring them to Digging Deeper, and we'll keep wrestling with this stuff a little bit more slower, more detail. But here's the bottom line. God chooses His people. God, in His absolute freedom, chooses Isaac, not Ishmael, chooses Jacob, not Esau. Now, just notice what's going on for you inside. Don't say it out loud, but what are you, what are you thinking right now? What feelings are going on for you? You might be thinking, that's unfair. That's unfair. That's unjust. How could one person be chosen and another one not? Surely if God were fair, it, it, He'd either choose everybody or it'd be up to us, shouldn't it be? He shouldn't choose, we should get to choose. It should be about something in us, whether that it's our choice or, or it should be something good in us that God looks at and goes, yes, that's what I want for my people, so I'll choose that person. Well, Paul knew that we'd be feeling this. God knew. And so he authored verse 14 for us. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? 
Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Is it unjust that it's up to God to choose who will be his people? Not at all, says Paul. In fact, it's God's right to choose. In fact, it's who God is to be the one who chooses. That's what that verse, that quote there in verse 15 means. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. This is from Exodus 33, which Joel read for us earlier. What God is doing is revealing His glory to Moses. And as He does this, He does it by telling Moses who He is, saying, this is what my name is. Which, like, if you said, Dan, tell me what's really good about you, I'd be like, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't say, Dan. But that's what God does, because it shows who He is. He reveals His name, saying, I am the Lord, which means I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, or I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, which means who I am as the glorious God of all things is the one who is absolutely free to be and to choose whatever I so please. That's what makes God, God, His sovereign freedom to be who He'll be. Now, there are things God can't be. God can't be unjust. God can't be evil. God can't be dependent upon His creation, because to be God is to be free from His creation. There are things He can't be, but He is free to be who He is and to do as He will see, as He sees fit. Do you see how radically different this picture of God is than what our world says? In fact, it's the opposite of what our world says. In our world, what do we believe about God and humans? We believe that humans have the freedom to be whatever we want to be. We have the right to choose to do whatever we choose to do, and nobody can tell me otherwise. And truth be told, we believe that God is constrained, that He's the one without freedom. We would never say it like that, we'd never put it so crassly. But we believe that He has to be all-loving all with no qualifications, no judgment whatsoever. We believe that He actually exists to serve us. Again, we wouldn't say that because it sounds crass, but we, we live as though God is there to serve me. He's there to give me the life that I want, and if He doesn't, I'm going to wag my finger at Him and I'm going to be cross at Him. What we've done is stopped viewing Him as God and started viewing ourselves as God. We've stopped seeing Him as the Creator and we've started viewing ourselves as the Creator, which is the very essence of sin. God is the Creator. We're just His creatures. He has absolute freedom over us. It's His decision to have mercy on whomever He will. He's God. God is like the author of a book. When you author a book and you write characters, you can do, what can you do with your characters in your book? Whatever you choose. God can have mercy on whomever He'll have mercy. I will be who I will be. Thank you very much. 
God is the creator, we are just his creatures. See this in verse 19. One of you will say to me, why then does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is form say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Do you see the point there? Verse 19 asks, why would God blame us? If God's the one who chooses and I can't do anything about that, why would he then blame me? Why would he blame me for sin if it's God's choice to just leave me there and keep me there in my sin? Now, that, that's a, a fair question, right, to some degree. Uh, it comes off the back of an example of God doing exactly that to Pharaoh. We skipped over it, but have a look in verse 17. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, this is God speaking to Pharaoh, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, at that point, you go, well, yeah, that's unfair, isn't it? Isn't that unfair for Pharaoh? Verse 19, why would God blame Pharaoh for sin if it's his choice that's keeping him there? Well, listen again to this absolutely sobering, silencing response. Verse 20, who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some for special purposes and some for common use? Friends, we are clay. God's the potter. We are creatures. He's the creator. More than that, we're sinners. God is the holy and righteous King. And so what should mere creatures expect from their Creator? Well, God the Creator can do as He pleases. What should sinful creatures expect from their holy Creator? We should expect nothing more than justice. What's justice? Justice is to get what you deserve. That's justice, isn't it? So what would be justice from God to us? Because we're guilty. We're guilty of putting ourselves in the place of God, of treating Him like He's our servant, like He's the clay and we're the potter. So what would justice look like from the Holy Creator? We would be totally wiped out. And yet, God, in His absolute freedom to do as He pleases, in His goodness, He says to, Mo to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Not justice, I'll have mercy. Now, what's mercy? Mercy is the opposite of justice. It's not getting what you deserve. God says, I will have mercy. I will choose some to be my people, to be those descendants of Abraham who I promised and the great display of God's mercy. Did you see it there in 9 verse 5? Israel, from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah 
who is God over all. We see the mercy of God in God, the Son, the creator of the world, becoming a creature, becoming limited, becoming bound and constrained, constrained to a physical body, a physical, a created nature, that He, the free one, the free and sovereign God, would give up that freedom to die for His rebellious creatures, to have those people who He's promised and foreknown and chosen, who He promised to Abraham all those years ago, whom He's predestined for glory before the foundation of the earth. Oh, what mercy! What mercy! Now, we could, we could stop there, well, I could stop there, um, I'd like to stop there actually, <laughs> but I, what I hope is that that attitude in your heart is starting to shift, to shift from how could God be in control like this to what mercy and glory that the sovereign God of all the universe, free and good, would do this for us. But there is another piece that this passage deals with particularly. Another piece which helps us appreciate God's mercy towards us even further. So, if you can hang on for a couple more minutes, let me take us here, and I'll do it more quickly. And again, if you are still wrestling, that's fine, and save up those questions and come to Digging Deeper. After the service tonight, I'm going to sit up the back there, I'm very happy to come to chat. But let's look at this last piece together, and see how God makes known even further the depths of His mercy to us. Verse 22... What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us whom He also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Verse 22, God in His patience bore with the objects of His wrath, bore with those people who deserved justice. He still shows His wrath, verse 22, He still makes His power known, but He bears with them patiently. Now again, this comes off the back of the Pharaoh example. Like, with, like Pharaoh in the Exodus, God brought plagues upon him and He made His power and His name and His wrath known, but He bore patiently. He didn't wipe out Pharaoh straight away. And what's the effect of that? Well, verse 23, he did this to make the riches of his glory known to us, the objects of his mercy. So that we, as we look on and we see the glory of God in this, we say, the glory of God, how great his mercy, because we're just like Pharaoh. We're not Moses in that story, we're kind of Pharaoh or the the wretched sinful Israelites. We are no less deserving of wrath. We are just like unbelieving Israel. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There is no one righteous, not even one. And yet, God has been merciful to us. Oh, the depth of that mercy total toward undeserving sinful creatures like me and you. Guys, predestination is a really hard thing to wrap your head around, but 
man, is it good for the soul to know that God is God and I am not? To know that He is the potter, I'm just clay. He is the creator, I'm just His creature. And to know that even despite my rejection of my creator, He in His absolute freedom and goodness has decided to show mercy to me. And that therefore I can have great confidence in the promises of God. Because not only has He promised me that if my trust is in Jesus, nothing can separate from me. Not only has He done that, but more, He's the sovereign one who is even determined that it will be so. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. Because He's the sovereign one who determines these things. We can have great assurance and comfort. Our faithful and good God will be merciful to all who trust in Jesus. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus to be your Saviour, the one who is the Messiah and who is God over all, who took on flesh, Creator, becoming like a creature to rescue you? Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Him? And for those of us who are the children of the promise, I hope that tonight has been one of those moments for you that's pushed you deeper into the things of God. I hope you see yourself more clearly your God more clearly, and especially His mercy towards you more clearly. He is the one behind your salvation. It does not depend on human desire or effort, not at least in the first instance, more on that next week. It depends on God. He sovereignly chose. That's a glorious truth. Because if it was up to me, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have chosen Him but He has poured out His mercy on me. Now, this doesn't mean you can't grieve for your non-Christian friends. Paul does. That's where the whole thing starts. He wished that he would be cut off. He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. But it does mean that we can trust God in His good and sovereign freedom, His goodness, His mercy. And we can be comforted that God has chosen to save some. And so we can keep praying and speaking to our friends because while ever there's still time, who knows whether they're chosen or not. I want to finish with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher from back in the day. As a 16-year-old, he was sitting in church and reflecting on on how it was that he came to be a, a Christian. And he says this, the thought struck me, how did I become to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, he said to himself, but how did I come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed before my mind, I should never have sought Him, unless there had been some previous influence to make me seek Him. I prayed, but how did I come to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures, but how did I come to read the Scriptures? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, He was the author of my faith from beginning to end. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. God is the chooser. God is the mercy giver. We are His children, forgiven and loved. Let's pray. Our Father, You are the kind and merciful God.
who is free to do as you please. And you are good, and so you do good to undeserving creatures like me. Father, if it were left up to us, we would never choose you. And yet you have been the author of our faith from beginning to end. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask that you would help us to stand in awe of you, the holy creator who has chosen a people for himself and through the sacrifice of your son has brought your promises to be. We pray that you would please have many more among us on the central coast and beyond who are your people who are yet to put their faith in Jesus and we ask that you would use us to speak your powerful word and that you would keep your promises and rescue more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.